Skyline Studio, excited to be here, right? Right? We're getting into 2024 in a big way, and uh, in for John Landecker. He'll be back with us. There's been some controversy. Brendan, you could probably, you know, he, he may be slightly under the weather, but he is a big Michigan guy, and that game is happening right now. <laughs> As uh, who knows what he's, he's recuperating, right? Hopefully to a national championship for the Michigan Wolverines. In studio with me, uh, we'll have David Hammond. He is going to be in for an eclectic uh, blend of guests. We're going to talk a little bit about some of Chicago's delicacy. He is, of course, the author of Made in Chicago, Stories Behind 30 Great Hometown Bites. David, welcome. Uh, hey, Dane. Good to see you again. It's good to see you, too, and it's uh, it's good to talk about some of these things. Plus, you'll have a little surprise in your bag of uh, yeah. of culinary yeah. tricks. Kind of a big big news uh, for Chicago original foods. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Then coming up, uh, maybe after maybe about 8.15 or so, Lou Bank is going to join us, a mutual friend of ours, yep. and he is going to... Now, he is... He's kind of like a Renaissance man, right? You know, he's he's just sort, of, sort of bon vivant, but he travels. But his wheelhouse is, of course, support and uh, advocacy for the world of mezcal. Yeah, and the people who make mezcal. I mean, he does a lot for the little communities that make uh, that make the mezcal. The people who grow the plants and then do the distilling and bottling and so on. He's uh, he helps them by building libraries and water reclamation systems. Did you have him on after Thanksgiving? Did that work out? I did. Uh-huh. I, yeah. You were traveling. You were in between. You were in between places because, believe this, and for the listeners who David and uh, and Lou Banks spend Thanksgiving in Mexico. I guess you can Mexico get thanks City. from wherever, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, that's the second year we've done that. It's uh, we brought some more, more family members this time and had a bunch of people guests from Mexico City, friends of Lou, come by, and it was. Uh, Really fun. We have the turkey. We have mole, you know, a Mexican sauce on the turkey, which kind of makes sense. Turkey mole is a classic Mexican dish. Uh, some incredible tortillas, and everybody brings stuff. Carolyn made bread stu- uh, cornbread stuffing. Cornbread because it's gluten- gluten-free, and Lou is avoiding gluten. It was so good. I knocked a bowl <laughs> of it onto the floor, and it broke. And, and you felt actual people sorrow. People were eating it off the floor. That is a joke. That is not true. That, ask Lou. Ask Lou okay. if he wasn't one of those guys doing that. Well, it was that good. Well, there may be like maybe uh, food insecurity issues in the area where you were, right? Where that would be. Well, it was a it was a home kitchen, so you know we can do whatever we can do whatever. Wow. Okay. So a little bit back on that for the holidays is that was it hard for you to source? I know we're talking Thanksgiving stuff, but hey. Um, was it hard for you to source a lot of the things? Or Not was- really. I mean, the uh, turkeys were indigenous to Mexico, to all of North America, so those okay. are easy enough to get. Uh, and all the, like, cornmeal, you know, they have a lot of corn in Mexico, too, so that that wasn't hard to get for the stuffing we made. Uh, and Lou, of course, provided abundant mezcal and tequila, some really cool stuff. And, uh, yeah, just like Thanksgiving at home, everyone brought something, but it was a little different and more fun because my grandkids were there and my daughter and her family. And really? A, bu- a buddy from college, my best man at my wedding came with his family. What? Yeah, it was a... It was, was, was this sort of just a, just a coincidence? I know the family, obviously, you knew that, but did you run into some friends down there? Oh, no, we didn't. These are all people who we planned to go to Mexico with. They wanted wow. to come along. I think Mexico City's become kind of a hip place to go. I mean, I've been going there since, like, the 80s sometimes but it's sometime it seems like it's become an attractive relatively local foreign destination it's on central mexico city is on central time so you don't even have to change time zones right and it's like three and a half four hours to get there about as long as it takes to get to california surprisingly 
close, right? It feels, at least it does yep. to me, and yep. I think to a I lot of listeners, it feels like it's a world away. Yep. But it's a lot closer than even let's let's say going to California. You and I uh, earlier this last year, you know, we went to Guadalajara. We got a mm-hmm. chance to go to El Viejito and check out yeah. the distillery there, and, awesome. and I was kind of surprised how close it really was because you feel like you know you're going to you know it's it's another country, of course, it's it's Mexico, but um, but it's surprisingly close and super accessible. We'll talk about that uh, in addition. Plus, of course the book and congratulations on all the success i have to say i have to put that you know kind of stake in the north pole of some of the first times that you had even thought about you were going to write the book you and i were talking about it on these airwaves oh i think i introduced it on one of your shows you were just like hey we're going to do this crazy Uh thing and obviously as a as a food person myself and, and you and i in and around a lot of that it was super interesting but i didn't know that the the world would find it just as it, I mean this the reception has been amazing. Certainly, the world of Chicago. We've done over thirty presentations in Chicago, and the response has been. I don't want to say surprising because that means it's like we didn't know it was going to be good. We thought it was going to be good, but the the warmth of people's responses too, and they come up after the presentation to just tell us how much they loved it, and it was great hearing about where the the Italian beef sandwich came from. These are foods people have been eating all their lives, so when we go into the history of it, that, that resonates. I mean, they they can relate to that. They want to know where did that Chicago hot dog come from. The 312-981-7200. Throughout the course of the program, David will be in studio with us the entire time. If you want to share one of yours, either one of maybe some thought process, some experiences with some of the the indigenous delicacies, the Chicago foods that he has highlighted, or, and I'm sure this has happened, where, let's say there's a follow-up book, there's got to be more than three. People said, hey, next time, you got to include this. Yeah, yeah, and I've actually, we found two things. In fact, I'd like to talk about those tonight, two items that are not in the book. Relatively recent developments, but that qualify by our definition of really? Chicago original food. So, re- so like a next generation. Yeah, this was their second edition. Yeah. Okay. So, but this isn't maybe an, an unexplored or undiscovered thing from way back. This is something maybe more recent. That uh, one is more recent. The other is an, a- uh, an ancient uh, ancient beverage that's been resurrected in Chicago. Wow, we're going to do this. So we're going to be all over the world tonight. We're going to actually break down a little bit of uh, Bears Packers. We're going to have Jim Bob Morris, who ties in a lot of the things, not only with the distillery in Mexico and being one of the founders of El Bandito Yankee, but also the Jim Bob Show here on uh, on WGN. And, of course, we were up at the Bears-Packers game at Lambeau Field. And uh, so a little bit of, you know, some hope for the future. Of course, the Bears have a big draft pick, but maybe a little disappointment, right? The season didn't go as well as people may have hoped. When we come back from this break, we're going to talk with the one and only Lou Bank. He is going to join us, and we're going to talk about Sacred, his um, concern, his... It's a foundation, right? And where he does, and as David mentioned, helps out in all those significant ways. So keep it here. It's Dane on 720. WGN 720 WGN it is Dane here with you along with uh, acclaimed author David Hammond he is in studio and he's also a mutual friend of our next guest and uh, you know there's people out there in the world that have just done some cool things you know whether it's his support of the the dog world the animal world his work with Marvel right doesn't get any cooler than that or that higher purpose stuff that he does in the world and in the name of uh, those great families working in the name of uh, Mescal down in uh, Mexico. It is the one and only Lou Bank. Lou, welcome to WGN. Hey, how you doing, Dave? I am good, and we've got da- our mutual friend. Hey, Lou. David Hammond. <laughs> hey, hey, he is not a friend of mine. <laughs> if you spend 
if you spend Thanksgiving <laughs> with a guy for more than three years, it's family. Oh. David Hammond is my brother. Thank you. Gracias, señor. Gracias. Okay, so we'll do the 23andMe on you guys a little bit later. <laughs> but one of the things he mentioned, and, and I, I mean, I think it was a great testament to the the potential taste quality of the mole sauce, but he had said that it got, it was so good that it got knocked over. The, the uh, corn uh, cornbread stuffing. It was the cornbread stuffing that it got knocked over. And, you know, it was more than a five-second rule. It was a forever rule, and people made their way to the ground in order to enjoy it. Oh, yes. People were eating, like, eating great stuffing and great ceramic wood, which you find all over <laughs> Mexico. It's just most people, when they eat it up, they don't mean they literally eat it up, but that's, that's what you do sometimes. You know, I think it's important, though, even just to share your guys' experience and the way that you guys love and experience not only the foods but the people of Mexico, it kind of takes it and puts it in just a broader category. I mean, I think that a certain amount of people, you think of it as a vacation destination, you think of of it maybe as a cuisine, right, that you love and enjoy here, but there's so much more to it, especially as David had mentioned, you know, Mexico City, right, has been sort of redefine i mean you, th- you think you know kind of what it is in my mind here's what i think when i first hear i think big bustling just giant in the middle of biggest the biggest city in north america yeah just absolutely huge but i don't know if people know either how accessible it is or really what a great place it is to visit and they seem to oh, like oh. us <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like an ad campaign mexico they city seem to like they us. seem to like us is that true lou or are they just like you guys i hey i so i i can't say whether they like me or not but they treat me awfully well when i'm down there at least what seems well to me mm-hmm. well part of the reason is i think that you're you know you kind of pay it back and forward in a bunch of ways and, and sharing your support for them. I know you've got a couple things coming up. We want to talk in the overview perspective for Sacred, something that's been near and dear for a long time, and some of the things that are happening and certainly ways that people can get more information and get involved. But then you've got some near future specific events and initiatives that are on the front burner. Yeah, yeah. You know, so when um, every, every year as uh, Giving Tuesday hits uh, just after after Thanksgiving, of course, the nonprofit world kicks into high gear for fundraising. And the campaign we've been focusing on since then is trying to preserve this endangered language, right? There's this barometer. I want to say it's when fewer than 100,000 people speak a language it's considered at risk of disappearing. And this language, Ixcatec, which is spoken primarily, uh, or was spoken primarily in this community of Santa Maria, Ixcatlán, Oaxaca, this language, they think there's fewer than 900 people who speak it now. Hmm. Somebody somebody told me that they thought it was actually down to nine, and I, like, yes. I find that really hard to believe. But, you know, whether it's 900 or it's nine, it's an endangered language. And one of the Mescalero families that I'm friends with down there has asked if we could help them raise funds to build this school-slash-library in order to preserve the language to start instead of watching it disappear as people who do speak it um, you know pass away instead trying to get some of the younger kids in town to uh, to learn the language and try and expand the, uh, the the speakership i guess you would call it of that language so that's 
that's one of our, our primary focuses right now. And maybe go out with tape recorders and start capturing how this language is spoken by living people in case th- those nine people aren't with us in the next 10, 20 years. You'll, they have a record yeah. of how it was supposed to sound by people who grew up with it. Yeah, that's a really good point, David. You know, it's it, like, I, God, I, I, I've never even thought about capturing the sound of it. I've been oh. looking at the written language lately. Yeah, right? No, but that um, is so just important, just the way that it sounds, the inflections, yeah. just... It, and your your thoughts on it, Lou, the value of it, obviously there's a historical connection that people have, and is it is it a dial... Is it... Is it Spanish as a no. dialect? And then specifically because maybe in that language they have ways to uniquely describe things that are important to them that you just don't find in other languages. Well, that's exactly right. You know, when, you, when we talk about preserving culture, I mean, the very foundation of culture is language, the way that you describe the things that, that, that are around you, that you live with, the people that you live with, right? That's all embedded in language. And and so when a language dies, I mean, yeah, you can preserve parts of the culture, but the foundation of that culture is gone. So this is this is a, a pre-Hispanic language. This is the language they spoke before the Europeans ever, you know, crashed the party here in Mesoamerica. Um, so yeah, so you know they've got they've got the written version of it, but of course before there was a written version, there was that spoken version. So you're right, David. Like. Part, part of what they're doing with the library is capturing the print, but I'm I'm pretty sure once you just you you suggest that to uh, to a Mondo and family that they'll be all over it because that too will exist in town right now. Could you say the name of that language again, Lou? Sure, it's Ixcatec. Um So it's I X C A T E C, and the name of the town is Santa Maria Ixcateco. And in fact. You know, this family has started a line of agave spirits, uncertified agave spirits, called Ixcateco, um, that also reflects the uh, really uh, another part of that culture of the community because they do they, they have their own processes for making the spirits. And the, the thing that that most mezcal geeks talk about when they're talking about this community is that they're fermenting the agave in the skin of a bull. It's literally uh-huh. this this sort of pouch that hangs between four logs. Um, so, it's, you know, the fact that they've got this this carryover from literally hundreds of years ago, that they're still using this, this process of fermentation. Does, the, know, does that bullskin, oh, pardon me for interrupting, does that bullskin uh, no, add anything like, flavor-wise or any <laughs> other way? You to, can taste the bull. You can taste the bull. <laughs> oh, it's so many people when I share it with them, they say, oh, it tastes to me like leather. But I think... I think that that might also just be when you say to somebody, sure. it's, you know, it's yeah, right. I think they start to, to taste those things. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, everything I've had that's been made in this community using that process, I, I, I love it. But I find so much variance from one expression to the other. And I'm sure it's adding something. My guess is, more than anything, it's becoming this environment, the bullskin itself becomes an environment in which these uh, these wild yeasts and other bacteria live um, that they, mm-hmm. they might not right. survive, right? So I'm sure it's affecting it that way, but probably more so that than the flavor of the skin itself. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, but so many different 
things and elements involved there. And Lou, and I know we've got we've got maybe about three minutes left, and I want you to be able to give the listeners an overview on on Sacred, a little bit about sort of the unique relationship on the mezcal side that is different than the tequila side in the way that the families utilize. Yeah, and that and your support to help support them in what it is that they do on just a totally different kind of scope and scale than you see on the tequila world. Well, it, you know, I think it's a little unfair to uh, to to dismiss tequila in that way, hmm. and I think it's also similarly unfair to build up mezcal on the other side of that equation. You know, you can it's a both tequila and mezcal are denominations of origin, and all that means is that each of them have these regulatory bodies that say, this can be called tequila, or this cannot be called tequila. But the rules that they follow, there, there are differences, but the rules that they follow allow for the same kind of, of traditions to be carried over from hundreds of years ago. It's just the vast majority of tequila is made in an industrial way. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of mezcal right now is made in a pre-industrial way, but I can show you industrial mezcal, and I can show you some pre-industrial examples of tequila. You know, to me, the thing that that I love so much, so much about uh, about these communities in Mexico is so frequently I'll find these families and and whole networks of families that have this different worldview where they're really they're not focused on efficiency; they're focused on best results, and I think. That mindset applied to problems like food insecurity, water insecurity, climate change. I think that mindset can help us develop better solutions to the problems that we're facing than we would are, we would be able to develop ourselves. Yeah, I think in order to kind of approach some of those things, you have to know about them a little bit. And that's one of the things that you're doing and uh, raising awareness with it. And so some of this may sound like a world away and some of it, it is, but Lou, before we let you go give information, I think, I think people can, they can support a local store, right. And then get more, you know, into things and support some of the causes that you're involved with that are coming up. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's heartwarming to, um, to be able to support like the school to preserve each tech, right. But you can also warm your belly while you're doing that. If you head over to Off Premise, the uh, the liquor store on Armitage uh, near Halstead, I'm not sure the exact uh, location, but they they've got this special limited edition box set of uh, puntas of a a 68% ABV agave spirit that we brought over special as a fundraiser. And in essence, what you're doing really is you're making a donation of a thousand dollars toward the uh, the school and in thanks you're going to get 1.5 liters of a spirit that you could only get if you followed me into this little community in puebla um that's way off the beaten path made by hand by by ildefonso mastatus he, he makes amazing spirits um yeah and you won't taste anything like this well, so Lou, before we let you go, give uh, give the website information, social media, so uh, people can find out uh, how to get a hold of you, how to support some of these things that uh, that that are going on. Right on. So, uh, if you want to support Sacred, please go to sacredagave.org. You can find us on social media at Sacred Agave. You can go to um, to offpremisechicago.com if you want to get that box set. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 anybody who's interested in having this conversation and helping these communities, 
you're my kind of people. Let's uh, let's go have a drink. Thanks, Lou. Thanks for everything you're doing. Appreciate you jumping on the show today. Oh, hey, right back at you. Thank you for the Hasta luego, amigo. To, to preach the gospel. All right. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, a little bit more on that, plus Bears and Packers. Jim Bob Morris will join us. It's Dane here on 720 WGN. And as uh, as Bear fans are looking forward to the uh, to next year, maybe a great draft pick, maybe you know a team that feels like maybe it's kind of where it was last year at this time, a little bit of promise, a little bit of hope, but kind of still in the same spot. A lot of them are just reminiscing on really what was the, the greatest tailgate. You know, you always say, and Dave Hammond is in studio with us as well, so you may not win the game, but you can always win the tailgate. Jim Bob Morris is with us. Hey, Jim Bob. Hello, Dane. How are you, partner? What a great day that was yesterday, enjoying that tailgate you're talking about. I mean, talking about a, a great festive environment with with both fan bases there and having a lot of fun and enjoying themselves and having a quite a bit of El Bandito Yankee. It was a really fun day. Yeah, and it seemed like everyone was really getting along. You know, the friendly rivalry, but a lot of camaraderie, a lot of support just as as fans and a lot of hope for the future. You know, unfortunately, for the Bears fans, you know, it is one of those things where, you know, you get that draft pick. I feel like the team was going in the right direction, but at the end of the year, they're kind of where they were last year. And you look at the comparisons between the teams, you look at the Packers, a team that was, you know, less experienced, one of the youngest teams, a quarterback, you know, much less proven than even Justin Fields. And, you know, they're going to be on to the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was quite a few takeaways on the game yesterday. I didn't think the score was indicative of, of the real game. I thought that, that the Packers, uh, you know, they were like, what, seven to 10 on, on, on third down conversions. And I, they sacked Justin Fields five times. And I think Love had one sack. He, you know, I, I think what I took away from the game is that, uh, J- Jordy Love played, uh, you know, con- under control and he was, well poised throughout the game his fumble was unfortunate that was one of the things that i you know i don't think is as reflective indicative of the the score but you know the bears failing to get a touchdown um in the game uh and that's that's you know the second time this season that the the bears couldn't muster a touchdown and you just can't win these games at the end of the year uh without you know scoring a touchdown i mean you gotta you gotta score and so uh i thought that uh uh, I thought the Bears' defense did a pretty good job, uh, you know, on, on a couple plays. But Jordan Love found ways to connect. I mean, my God, he was, you know, he threw for over 300 yards. I mean, uh, you know, the game was still in question. I mean, even though the score, I mean, the, you know, if the Bears do score, and I love D.J. Moore, I think he's fantastic. But when he's such a dynamic player, you know, I was worried there at the end for the Packers. I mean, they scored too much. I mean, the game was still reachable for the Bears. Yes. It, it, I mean, it was close the entire time. I mean, there were so many opportunities that uh, I think that both teams had to either do more, score more, be a part of it. I mean, it was in question up until the end. But you don't want to take that much away from, from Jordan Love. I mean, I'm surprised. Every time they bring these statistics up, I'm shocked. Whether it's the statistic that, you know, the year that he had would have been the greatest, you know, year in Bears quarterback history, that right? Right? Or the fact now they're saying that, you know, the end of the stats is that Jordan loves it's the third best quarterback year for a rookie quarterback ever in the NFL. Well, he passed the, you know, he passed the 4,000 yard mark as a rookie. I mean, um, and I, as I said, I mean, he played with a lot of 
a lot of poise, I thought. Uh, the last four games, I, I, you know, other than the debacle they had up in, in New York, I thought, I thought Love, you know, played, you know, pretty good. Um, uh, you know, and he's showing, like I said, the, the chagrin of, of the Bears fan is, oh, no, do we have another, you know, what do we got brewing here? <laughs> Hopefully not another Hall of Fame quarterback. I mean, oh. By the way, I'm going to – I was uh, a friend of mine was talking when we were talking uh, at the game yesterday, and they go, "You know, you should trademark the saying." Let me tell you something, Dane. <laughs> <laughs> well, but there's a, there's a lot to say, and before we get on to the national championship game that is happening as we speak, and I know a lot of people, certainly a lot of uh, Michigan fans, Michigan alums are right here in the Chicagoland area, so we'll talk about that in a second. But you think about this, and you know, and it has happened where wild card teams have come in and found their way to the Super Bowl, and you look at with Aaron Jones, the way that he is running, you look at just the way that they have, even through in- injuries, been able to discover a lot of great young talent on the receiver side. I think the Packers are a dangerous team. I mean, the, that would be the, the team you didn't want to play was maybe the Cowboys at home, but who knows? Well, and it depends on who gets healthy. You know, I mean, uh, the, here we are at the part of the season where injuries matter a ton. And so who's going to be healthy, who's going to come back, you know, is Watson going to be available? That soft tissue injuries are always a bummer. Um, you know, trying to recover from whether it's an ankle sprain or, or a hamstring, those are just lingering, you know, injury issues. But we'll see who comes back. I mean, the Cowboys look really dynamic at home. They look fast. They look tough. I mean, they beat up the Philadelphia Eagles at, at home. I mean, I was, I got to tell you, just beat them up. And so, um, I, I I don't know. They could be a team that gets into the playoffs. I think that you know, there's a couple dangerous teams out there. I think the the Buffalo Bills are dangerous. I think the Cleveland Browns are our people could overlook them and, and the Packers may be one of those teams that could be overlooked as well. When it comes to the national championship, it is happening right now. It is Michigan, it is Washington. You are watching it. I'm not watching it. We're in the studio here. How does it look? Uh Michigan looks good. Very dominant. Um you know, Washington, they're gunslingers. You know, they, they, they got the score at the end of the half. They're going to be aggressive. They, you know, they get the ball coming out here, you know, in the, in the second half, and we'll see what they do. I mean, that's a dynamic offense against a, a, a really good Michigan team. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be a great game, I think. I think that, you know, Washington, you know, they missed a couple of, of throws to, to make the game a little tighter. I think that'll get tightened up in the second half. And I think it's going to be an amazing second half. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't, I mean, the Washington, uh, Washington has been disrespected all year. I mean, you know, they had a game where they were eight and a half or nine point underdogs to Oregon, a team that they beat previously. And I'm like, well, that's like a gift. And so, uh, we'll see what happens, buddy. It's going to be a great game. I'm, I'm looking forward to the second half and how things go. And, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, See now what happens in the playoffs here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about you know the 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 Packers. Uh, you know, that four months of, of football here, and, and you get rewarded. Hey, you're going to the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be exciting. A lot of ways for people to celebrate. I mentioned Dave Hammond when we first introduced you, and so Dave Hammond is you know acclaimed author and writer and personality on the media side here. And Jim Bob, he has been with us to El Viejito to the El Bandito Yankee Distiller. He was one of those first guys to uh, be able to to taste the Anejo, and he got a chance to interview Karina Rojo. So when that launches in the near future, in the next month or so. 
Dave uh, will have something to say. Yeah, no, I, th- I was very impressed with that operation. I thought the distiller there, whose name I'm not, was it Rosa? Am it's I Karina Rojo. Yeah, Rojo. Uh, yeah, she. it was interesting to see a, a female distiller who committed, knows what she's doing. Cool product. Yeah, it's one of the stories, Dan, that, that when I tell the story, I go, listen, we're a lot of years away before we get a woman head coach in the NFL. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that getting a, becoming a master distiller in Mexico, I look mm-hmm. into the, the same type of, of situation. I mean, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a men-dominated industry, and it's pretty yeah. macho, and her becoming that, that's a great story. And, and we, you know, it is. we try to broadcast that as much as we can. I think it's a great story. It takes a lot of courage for her, too, to take that position and fearlessly go yeah, forth absolutely. and make great tequila. It, it, <laughs> Yeah, and so, you know, when we were traveling around Mexico looking for that right distiller for us that was a fit for us, and you know what I'm talking about. You know, you're traveling through the highlands there, and and it's quaint. It's very quaint, and it's rustic, and you come down that first part of that cobblestone uh, road there. It it just felt right, you know, going to El Vieto uh, for me. when And then meeting with um, uh, Juan Eduardo and then Karina, Mm-hmm. It was just a really good feeling, and, and boy, we produced, as you know, I mean, that Anejo is going to be world-class Anejo, and uh, got a you know 96 rating coming out of the, the first sips from some of the, the big-time people, oh, so I right? appreciate uh, you, you seconded it. Yep, yeah, David got a chance to try it. We did, too. We're excited about it. We know that people are going to really enjoy that, and there's a great story to tell with all of it. And so, Jim Bob, we'll let you get back to it. And I know for the Jim Bob Show here on WGN, we are going to have a big playoff preview that's going to be coming up, so people should look forward to that this weekend. Yeah, and and we'll go back to our, you know, like I said, we ended up pretty strong uh, in regards to the picks. So, you know, 30, what was it, 36 and 3 and 1. So I just kept wishing I'd take my own advice and I would be in the Caribbean right now. <laughs> if you could pass some of that advice along to our friend Whitey, pass that advice along. <laughs> well, we'll not let everybody know. We're talking about our buddy Whitey, and a shout out to everybody. And hey, thank you guys. Appreciate the conversation tonight. And and uh, let's go watch the rest of this national championship. And uh, I'll give you a call back later. I'll talk to you. All right, thanks, Jim. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back. We're going to go deep into the indigenous delicacies of Chicago, made in Chicago. The author, of course, you've been hearing him uh, all night, David Hammond. Uh, so we'll be back with that. It's Dane here on seven twenty WGN seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you until. 10 in studio with me is the one and only the incomparable uh best-selling author david hammond hey, made Dane. in chicago think about this i always talk about it and i've been covering you know food in here you know in the city and in and around it and and really an ambassador for you know every place i go i talk about it it's a great food town and i always say you can spin the globe and put your finger down and you'll find someone making it at a great uh at a really high level here in the chicago area but you know chicago's own foods our own delicacies often pigeonholed into people like hot dogs or pizza right that's what it is yeah yeah or italian beef perhaps the um chicago is becoming known as a major food city i mean it is now known as a major food city but when people talk about chicago as a great food city what they're talking about usually are the james beard award-winning restaurants the restaurants that get michelin stars all worthy all places i jump the chance to go have dinner but there's a lot of small little mom and pop places that are making the foods that tens of thousands of Chicagoans eat every day. Many of them are well known, like you said, deep dish pizza, Chicago hot dog, Italian beef. 
many people outside of Chicago have heard of those things. And when they come to the city, that's what they want. But in our book, this is the book Made in Chicago, Stories Behind 30 Great Hometown Bites. That's by me, David Hammond, and Monica Eng. There's 27 other foods that are <laughs> that were born in Chicago, are eaten by thousands of people a day, but are r- r- virtually unknown in many parts of the city. For instance... The cool stuff they're doing on the south side is not very well known on the north side, like the gym shoe, for instance. Or uh, <laughs> well, but maybe some marketing or focus group could help them with descriptive and maybe appetizing maybe, names. Or, <laughs> or maybe they just want to keep it small scale and serve their communities. I mean, that could be you know the goal of some of these places. So we came up with these thirty foods. We've been touring all last all last year. We're starting again this year. Um, Going out to libraries with the Newberry Library, the Harold Washington Library, 30 other places, over 30 other places now, where people have come to hear about the foods they've been eating all their lives and many times the food they love. They want to hear the history behind it, why this food turned out that way, and... We kept it at 30, but recently a few new foods have come to my attention. Do we want to talk about that Yeah, now? sure. Let's... Um, one that I just had for the first time now, last now week. Now, do you have a vetting process? Yes. Like someone comes up, just to, like, just to right. confirm, does it have to have like some kind of provenance? Is there like a form someone fills out if they want to submit <laughs> a new food? What? Uh, no one's ever actually submitted a food to us. I mean, we've hunted them down, and they have to be foods that either were made for the first time in Chicago or were introduced and put on a menu for the first time in Chicago. And they have to be served, to this day, at more than one place. It can't be just like a chef special right. that's going to come and go in a week. These have to be foods that, uh, like shrimp de jong, that was a food that was developed in Chicago, introduced at the 1893 Columbian Exposition. And now you find shrimp de jong at a lot of high-end restaurants, even uh, cod de jong and and. Lobster Dijon. You had breadcrumbs and garlic, olive oil, a little wine. Boom. You got yourself Boom, a Dijon. You got yourself a Dijon. <laughs> That's what we call you it. You do gym shoe Dijon. <laughs> it hasn't been done yet. No, it hasn't been done. See, look, it's just a think tank right here. <laughs> so, yes, foods that we put in the book had to be served at more than one place and had to have been developed in Chicago. Now, um, Lee Omolinsky the bakery chef at Daisy's is now serving, and I had one for the first time last weekend, although this is offered at at least two other bakeries that we found. (laughs) You might have heard of this. It's kind of wild. It's a Chicago-style hot dog in a croissant. So you have this, the the conjunction of this kind of fancy French pastry and a Chicago hot dog is kind of funny in and of itself, but it turns out to be delicious. And they have, actually, it's a poppy seed Croissant, just like the poppy wow. seed bun you get, and it was it was really very good. They put the mustard and the glow in the dark uh, pickle relish and everything inside the croissant, and the wieners kind of sticking out both ends. It's really quite good. Now it's it's also we found it at. Uh, we haven't been to these places yet, but we understand they're serving these at Loaf Lounge and Dan the Baker too. These are two other bakeries that are wow. taking Chicago hot dogs, putting them in a croissant. Now, do you think can we talk about? This? Yeah, sure. Okay, this now. A, a discovery, a discovery, a revival that I find particularly exciting. Uh, we're looking around. We're going to be on um, Chicago Today tomorrow. We're just going to be taping a show. It's an NBC program. And they wanted to talk about some Chicago foods and drinks, but they didn't want to do Malort again because we were on the show earlier, early last year. We did Malort. So I was Googling around. I remembered when I was a kid, I walked by on Madison Street. If you're walking from the train station and you're by the 200 Uh, West Block on Madison, there's a big sign that says, Home of Cohasset Punch. 
home of Cohasset Punch. That means that's where it was born, right? But Cohasset's in, in Massachusetts. What, what does that mean? <laughs> and I was a kid, you know, when I saw this, I didn't know what the heck it meant. I didn't investigate it. But Cohasset Punch is a Chicago drink that had been made since the late 19th century and had been made continuously in Chicago. It stopped production, uh, like, I think it was 89, they did their last bottle. Really? So pretty recent. Pretty recent. And the trademark expired. The the company went out of business. They didn't didn't renew their trademark. So this young guy, uh, uh, Greg Shutters, I want to make sure I got that right, Uh, Greg Shutters, yeah, uh, revived the brand. I Googled around looking for Cohasset Punch, and I found a website devoted to Cohasset Punch. I emailed the website, and this guy, Greg Shutters, responded to my question. And he's... he's uh, How fortunate could he get? Well, he's there toiling in obscurity, and then, <laughs> like, you're the one guy on the whole planet that would be looking for... <laughs> yes, yes, it was meant to be. So what, what Greg has done is he's researched Cohasset Punch, and there's been a, quite a lot written about it since, like, 1901, in 1902, people were writing cocktail books about Cohasset Punch and including recipes on how you can make it at home. And it has some rather common ingredients like sweet vermouth, lemon juice, stuff like that. But it also requires New England rum, which isn't, it's, uh, I forget the name of the rum, it's uh, Meredith or something like that, isn't made anymore. So he had actually come up with a recipe that would simulate the flavors of New England rum. So his he's trying now to get his bottles into distribution. He is bottling the stuff. I have a bottle right here in front of me. Maybe Dane will try some. Yes, we will try some. And I had to ask, you know, you know, off the air before we got on, I said, you know, because Malort is, you know, it's identified with Chicago and there's a certain appeal to it and it has its fans. But, I mean, I got to say the consensus across the board would be that it's pretty terrible, right? It just happens to be. Well, it's gotten better. You know, the CH Distillery, which now makes Malort, tweaked the recipe slightly. And uh, How would you describe it? If you had to describe it, use your describing, like, notes of detecting this. Because here's my thought. It's like like kind of an old Band-Aid. Sure. That, yeah, you it know. gets a lot of, you know, or, yeah, <laughs> a gym shoe that was dragged through a cow pasture yeah, or something. It's, it's, it, it is, I don't think it's that bad. Now, I like Amaro's, which are bitter drinks from Italy, and they're kind of, you know, well, like Fernie Branca is, is an Amaro, and that's kind of a popular drink with the young folks. Um, it's like that. I would not say it was as complex as a lot of those, but a bad flavor? I don't think so. Now, Monica Eng, my co-author, had her first sip of uh, Malort in these studios here, and she lo- she hated it at first. I got a picture of her making Malort face. Incidentally, folks, you want a little laugh? Go on Instagram and search hashtag Malort face, and you'll see pictures of people, usually visitors That's from people's out of like honest reaction. Yeah, right? People usually, yeah, usually out of towners, a Chicagoan who's probably hosting them says, "Hey, you want to try a shot of Chicago's own spirit?" Sure, they try it. They make a funny face. It's called Malort face, uh, and you can find it hashtag Malort face. So, incidentally, a great. Co- I don't know if this cocktail has been done yet. But Cohasset Punch and Malort, Cohasset Punch on the sweeter side, Malort on the bitter side, I think those could Is be... Is this mi- like the, the cocktail equivalent of the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup? Like <laughs> two great tastes that go great together, yes, yes. <laughs> greater than the sum of the parts? Could, although, yeah, some people might say that Malort isn't such a great taste, but I think it actually, I, I kind of like it. I mean, I, I don't have it often, but I think making it, in fact, I'm not... This weekend, I'm going to make a cocktail with the two of them. I'll be the guy who invents the Malort Quest. We'll, we'll try it during the, the news break. I'll give my reaction. I wanted to ask you, too. So you've got – it's a good amount, you know, for the book, the 30. 
as far as the you yeah. know the different things. Did you have an idea? Because you know, as you start to explore, certainly you have that team photo, which is a handful of things, and think, well, we'll find a few more. Did you cap it at a certain amount, or was that was thirty we, about what you thought made sense? We actually didn't know how many we would find. I was surprised we found as many as thirty, uh, but thirty seemed like a nice round number, a good place to stop. Uh, and I'm not sure there are many other. Chicago original foods out there that we didn't cover. Um, but I've just named two that might be in the next edition, the uh, Chicago-style hot dog croissant and the uh, Cassett Punch, which look for it on store shelves this spring. He's uh, Greg is, Greg Shudders is talking to distributors now to get, you know, you have to talk to somebody like Southern Wine and Spirits or whatever to get distributed <laughs> in the stores. I don't know that he's talking to Southern. I imagine how that, David, how that conversation would go. You you bring it in. I'm imagining a conference room. I'm imagining, like, distributor people who are going to bring it to the places and they try it. And they're like, this is awful. He's like, right. (laughs) With my lord. (laughs) Exactly. The taste we're going for. Exactly what I want. So we are going to take a break. When we come back, you never know, you may find this, uh, you know, the Cohasset Punch on uh, at the tables or behind the bars at some places from Chicago Restaurant Week. So, David, we're going to be talking to some of those. What, what, yeah. Can I add just one other thing? Sure. Uh, this Friday in the Tribune, there's going to be a story written by me uh, about Cohasset Punch and Greg Shutters and the work he's done. That's going to be online. And then on Wednesday, it'll be in the print edition. So you can check it out there if you're interested in more. What I find to be a fascinating story of a guy with a passion who found some a, a, a deceased <laughs> liqueur that he really loved. Loved, and he's brought it back to life for us it, Chicagoans. Yeah, is it, is it revived or is it zombie, right? Who knows? We'll <laughs> find out. Liquor, right? 